This is Reimagining Healthcare, a podcast about innovation in the healthcare industry. It's a show for healthcare business owners, for healthcare professionals, for industry investors, and health tech entrepreneurs. On the show, I talk to health tech and healthcare innovators to uncover how they're reimagining and building a world of seamless digital healthcare experiences and how that fits into people's lives. I'm your host, Yanni Sapanos. Today, I'm speaking with Mohamed Mohage, co-founder and director of Pantea, a patient experience application bridging the gap between medical specialists and their patients. Mohamed talks me through the journey of startup into early stage for Pantea. It's an mHealth tool that aims to increase communications between specialists and their patients in order to reduce recovery-related readmissions via integrated and secure patient results outcome blocks. That sounds like a big sentence, but within it are some real breakthrough ideas that leverage human-centered design, privacy by design, and digital health concepts to support patient engagement, adherence, and feedback. We cover Muhammad's experience with the University of New South Wales Health 10X Accelerator Program, whilst working directly with specialists to uncover the client engagement problems and designing the Pantea MVP, all while being an undergraduate student and seemingly with a smile on his face. Yes, it's early days for the Pantea story, but central to it is the hard work and commitment of its founders to synergize their skills and build the relationships needed to commercialize the product and now move beyond. So how do you get started in digital health startups? Well, there's a lot in this conversation for you to take away that answers that question. Let's jump in. Hey there, Mohammed. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me on the show. It's an absolute pleasure. You're at a quite an early stage in your startup journey. So I'm really excited to have you on the show, have a bit of a chat about the experience that you've had to date, especially because you're still an undergraduate student, aren't you, at the University of New South Wales. Tell me about your journey to date in getting to this point, and then we'll, we'll sort of unpack what Pantea is and what you're proposing to do for your customers. Yeah, absolutely. So first off, it's a pleasure to be here. In terms of Pantea itself, Mark Bradish, which is my co-founder, and myself, we actually met by complete coincidence about two years ago. And we embarked on a journey to help bring more patients to clinicians. We started off through a digital marketing agency platform, and we were really lucky to get in touch with a few surgeons who wanted to improve their clinic services and bring more patients in through the door. And we actually built some really good relationships. And one of those relationships were with a surgeon who was starting his clinic from the ground up. He was moving away from a bigger clinic and wanted to create his own brand. So we actually helped him set everything up from the ground up, including his branding, his brand mission, his vision, and all the marketing collateral around that. And in doing this, we actually noticed a lot of the gaps which exist within the patient experience, which I'm sure that you know of. And I'm sure that a lot of digital health companies out there are trying to resolve. So we found ourselves in a very exciting position where we had the relationships within the industry to create such a platform. And at the same time, we were motivated to help patients due to our own personal reasons and really motivated to create a world where every patient is directly connected to their health. And that is not a typical story for a lot of people in terms of how they enter the fray with startup. You're defining, I guess, your target customer or addressable market by that first relationship with the medical specialist. Is that fair to say in terms of where you're currently going? Yeah, correct. So at the moment, we've really tried to focus in on private clinics, specifically looking at plastic and cosmetic surgeons who perform category three elective surgeries. We see this as a really powerful potential for us to tap into the market. 
as we know, if we go towards the public health route or even through private hospital chains, it's quite difficult to really get our foot into the market. Whereas having those pre-existing relationships with private clinics allowed us to have a really deep understanding of that patient and doctor relationship and what improvements can be made. And then from there, we hit the drawing board and we're like, cool, let's create a product that actually addresses these gaps that exist. And what type of skills are you coming from in terms of yourself, Mohammed, and also with your co-founder, Mark? How are those two skill sets different or complementary and, and how are they working to actually support the foundation of Pantea? I think with any early stage startup, the one thing that people or investors, I would say, look into is the dynamic between the founders and if their team is the right team to actually execute it. You can have a great idea, but without the right team, it doesn't really make sense. Myself, I've come from a sales background, been in sales for about three years or so, and at the same time, have a really deep passion for product design. I've been designing different apps and products and have been within the creative space for about four years now. And it's always been a side hustle and a complete passion of mine. But at the same time, I also have deep industry relationships with a lot of doctors and specialists within the family and within my friends group as well. So going back to the most super, super useful on Mark's end. So he's currently our chief operating officer. And at the same time, he's done marketing for over seven years now. Um, and he's consulted for over 53 companies and generated over $10 million in revenue for them. So he's super experienced on the product marketing end and the product management end as well. So together, we're a really good team. And I think most of all, we're really good mates. So it, it is a real nice pleasure working with them on a day-to-day basis. That's great. And then that's definitely some very useful skills, especially the ability to empathize deeply with the customer and the type of problem that you're solving for, and then being able to develop your product strategy from a design standpoint. How's that journey been for you as far as translating, working with that customer that you mentioned a little bit earlier? Was it more of a consultation at first to try and find things that were in the market, or did you approach it right from the get-go as let's learn and design a solution here? From the initial kickoff point, I think of the client starting their clinic, they were really carrying a lot of the, I would say, the patient interactions that they developed within their previous clinic. The previous clinic was quite established. So all the documentation, all the patient pathways that already been predetermined. And we were really just remodeling them for the current practice and rebranding it as well. And within that process, we would approach the client and we said that, hey, do you think that we could actually improve this by creating a digital communication platform for the patient interactions? And at the same time, the doctor was quite wary of these situations. So for example, when we were mapping out the patient journey and we were looking at communication, we saw that the communication channels were quite dispersed. The initial inquiries would happen through email or through telephone or via social media. And then communications beyond that were through, again, email, possibly sent through a GP referral letter or at the same time through WhatsApp. So us noticing these gaps and the surgeon also mentioning that there was a place for improvement really motivated us to take a look at the problem deeper. And then from there, we put the pieces together and said, hey, this is actually a huge problem that we can solve through our digital platform. How is that problem sort of playing itself out pragmatically? Were there issues in recovery for patients that the surgeon was working with? Were there breaks in communication or a failure to adhere to programs? What Could you describe or summarize, I guess, how you saw the problem? I think at the moment, And throughout the entire process, we've 
really summarize the problem into three main dimensions. The first one looking at patient experience, and I guess this is due to a huge shift in terms of consumer expectations, as a lot of businesses actually struggle to keep up with the pace of more demanding consumers. The second dimension that we saw had to do with patient engagement, because we simply believe that patients deserve better engagement as there's a better need for communication and education throughout the entire journey. And then finally, we had a look at patient outcomes, looking at reducing readmission rates to create a more positive experience for the clinician and the patient. Now, if we look at this from a more global point of view, we can see that of the you know 230 million surgeries that happen every year, 10% of those actually end up in readmission. So we actually saw this as a huge global issue and see the global potential of Pantea moving forward. That's certainly a great way of framing both the problem at a pragmatic level and, and then also at an economic level as well. So with that as kind of an insight that you developed through working with this archetype customer, that then led you to starting to think through the development of what is now known as Pentea. So perhaps you can tell us about your startup. What is it doing? And perhaps explain the name as well in terms of your branding strategy. It's actually a funny story. We hit the drawing board quite a lot to see what type of a name would work out. I guess initially working with plastic and cosmetic surgeons, Pantea, the correct pronunciation in the Persian language is actually Pantea. In Persian law, that's the name of the most beautiful woman. So we kind of took on that name from that mythical story. So it is quite funny, but Pantea is sort of like a switched around and a different spelling. So that's, that's where we got that from. But the product itself has actually evolved quite a bit within those first two years. And really within the last, I would say, nine months is where we've perfected it and brought it to a point where we're ready to actually start engaging customers and developers and really start building it out. As its baseline premise, it's a platform specialized in increasing patient engagement for private clinics. Now we do this through focusing on three main features. That's patient monitoring, patient education, and patient communication. And it's those three realms that we're really focusing on and tapping into in every single point of the patient journey. So when it comes to patient monitoring, again, we're looking at real-time recovery status with predictive analytics. So the main focus on that is digitizing the patient protocols and the recovery pathways of specific procedures. Initially, we'll be starting off with breast augmentation and injectables as our key focus. And as time goes on, we'll be expanding them. Now, with patient recovery monitoring, we're looking at it through two main realms. The initial realm is through health metrics. So that's the measuring of baseline metrics. And again, that can be guided through wearables such as the Apple Watch, Fitbit, or other Google Fit products. And that's where patients can track, you know, for example, their sleep and more specific metrics relating to procedures. So if a patient's going for a rhinoplasty or a septorhinoplasty, and they want to see how much their breathing is improved, creating a baseline pre-surgery and then tracking their progress after surgery can really help build a good picture for how their recovery is going in terms of their breathing. And again, the second realm that we're focusing on is patient-reported measures. Now, patient-reported outcome measures and patient-reported experience measures are the two main ones that we're focusing on. And recently, there's been quite a huge shift towards calculating and understanding how the patient's recovering on a much greater level. In terms of government support, there's been quite a big initiative from the Agency of Clinical Innovation, or ACI, and they're trying to streamline the use of patient-reported measures and patient-reported outcomes through clinicians as well as hospitals and the greater public health system. So we really believe that we're taking this initiative and pushing forward with it and really creating 
comprehensive monitoring pathways relating to the patient's outcome and their experience. When it comes to patient education and monitoring on their understanding, I think it's super, super important for the patient to completely know what type of procedure they're heading into, especially when it comes to elective surgeries such as plastic and cosmetic surgery. And education is really key in reducing the stress and improving the outcomes for the patients. But tracking their understanding is quite difficult, especially when you have quite a dispersed consultation level where patients come in for two, three weeks in advance, and they don't really remember how their progress is doing. So we actually have built-in education modules within the platform that can help guide the patient's recovery. And at the same time, we feed that information back to the surgeon so that they know how the patient's performing. And at the same time, we can reduce consultation times by sending the patient home with detailed instructions that they can review and also do a quiz on to see how their performance is doing. So that's on the education side. And finally, when it comes to the communication side, again, going back to that initial client, multi-channel communication really increases management complexity for a clinic and takes away the valuable time for clinic staff. One of the nurses that we spoke to actually had a separate phone that she would have for her patients who would call in and it was ringing every single minute. So it's quite difficult when patients are calling, they're messaging you through Instagram, they're sending you emails. It's really hard to manage all the systems. So for us, we wanted to create a centralized communication platform for these clinicians. And these are also guided by smart suggestions so that if a patient has an initial inquiry and they are looking for an answer, before they actually get connected to the clinician, we'll provide them with answers that are linked back to the education modules. So then that way we can filter patients by requests and more urgent requests can be sent directly to the clinician. And after hours, we're currently speaking with Health Direct for 24 hours after our care, and that's through a registered nurse. So it's really exciting, yeah. That's great. The experience for both the patient and the clinician would be somewhat different, I'd imagine. So can you talk us through what is the patient engaging with and how do you compare and contrast that with what the experience is like for the specialist on the other side? So the Pantake ecosystem really revolves around two different products. So we have the clinic dashboard, which is the clinic-facing product. So that's the actual product that the clinician can monitor and message and track the patient's education through. And on the other hand, we have the patient application. Now, this is actually a general health consumer application that will be launched later next year. And through a unique clinic code, they'll be able to connect to the clinician. So patients can actually already beforehand track their health throughout the app as a general health tracking app. And when they go in for their consultation, then they'll be provided a unique clinic code And then that will actually hook up their information to the clinician so that they can actually track their historical data as well as their present and future data as well. So it's really through those two main products that we're looking at. That seems perfectly logical, by the way, Mohammed. So you've got tracking for the patient and also providing feedback. Does that involve some direct messaging and asymmetrical communication to support any other measures that are being input into the application? Absolutely, yeah. So direct messaging is what the communication is really all about. Again, that can go through text, that can be progress photos that can be sent to the clinician, can be audio clips, documents, files, and that's all stored for the clinician to see. And at the same time, the clinician is actually able to have a full history of all conversations between themselves and the patient. So at the same time, it's super valuable for them in case of any you know potential legal risks that they can export the whole conversation history, they can export the patient's education history for evidence and for legal governance down the line. So clinicians have found that extremely useful as well in terms of historical data. 
That's great. And something that is quite interesting about the way that you're actually integrating some of the patient information into the communication flow, you describe it as a dynamic patient block and an integration into the model. Tell us more, what is it and why did you choose that particular methodology? Yeah, absolutely. So with the dynamic patient block, it's really a dynamic patient data permission system. And again, this is from some conversations, some really valuable conversations that we had with our medical advisory board. And they actually recommended to us in terms of, you know, overbearing and unnecessary data beyond a specific monitoring period. So what we've actually done is for each procedure, we've defined specific monitoring periods and we've split them up into three basic categories. So we have live feed, we have monthly reporting, and then we have on request. And this actually saves time and provides security on both ends, on both the patient and the clinician end. So for example, if we look at a procedure like an abdominoplasty, for the first three months of the patient's post-recovery care, it's really important that they stay connected to the doctor. That's when the chance of wound infections and surgery site infections and readmission are the highest. So within that period, the patient's data is actually sent or through a live feed into the clinic, and they'll be able to actually view and monitor that data. But beyond those three months, so if we look at a range from three to 12 months, that's actually sent on a monthly or a fortnightly basis. And we take the data that the patient has collected and we create them into really easy to understand reports for the clinician, and they'll receive that as a notification on their platform. Now, beyond that 12-month stage, then that becomes on request. And this is where we really take, you know, not only the clinician's time into perspective, but also the patient's data and the value of that data. And again, if a patient wants to come in for an 18-month consultation and the surgeon asks them how they're doing, they can just simply download a copy of their progress over those past few months to create a guiding snapshot that's really complementary and is really valuable to a clinician because, again, patient recall rates aren't that high. So this actually really assists in the clinician having an understanding of how the patient's doing overall. It's an interesting approach. And I wanted to give you the opportunity to kind of tease it out a little bit because there are a variety of layers to what I'm hearing and what I understand about your particular approach to the design here. The one being that you're taking a very patient-centric approach as far as the data privacy and security is concerned. And not security, at least as far as I can understand it, and correct me if I've got this wrong, it's not just confining itself to IT security. It's more about the security of who's got access to that particular block of information at any given point in time. And somebody is empowering another person to be able to get access to it. So in this example, the patient is saying, yep, I'll give you access to this and making, you know, that block available. And conversely, that could work the other way if a specialist is referring or conferring with a colleague in that respect. Have I understood that correctly? Is that kind of the basis of your your design principle there? Absolutely. Absolutely. From the very start, we focused on patient-centric design and really human-centered design. And at the same time, like you mentioned, we really value the patient's privacy and and how that data is input into the system. I noted that you referred to that also with some of your marketing on your website around APRA compliant data security. Are there any references there with respect to APRA that talk to that or are you kind of taking a more holistic approach in the way that patient data and sensitive information is managed in the system? I mean, our relationship with APRA has been ongoing. I think from the very start when we were just providing digital marketing services for clinicians, We always referred back to the guidelines and and the guidelines of the national board in terms of how clinicians can market themselves online and beyond on multiple different realms. And again, we referred back to them multiple times in relation to how we actually 
perceive that patient data. And at the same time, across many different institutions, we've seen the support and the encouragement towards patient-centered design and patient security for data as well. So that conversation is, is always an ongoing one. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think you're also drawing, whether you're conscious of it or not, you're drawing on privacy by design principles as well in the way that you actually put that together. Has that been a conceptual framework that has kind of informed your design? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Looking at privacy by design, especially when it comes to patient data. From the onset, what we actually did was create the architecture for our databases and how that data was going to move across. And we had a few conversations actually, which was super valuable with Radmus Advisory, and they provide a lot of insight into how patient data should be managed. They consult with larger private hospital groups and in public hospital groups as well. So from the onset, that was a huge priority of us. And one of our mentors mentioned that if you don't look at it from the start, two, three years down the line, it's, it's just too late and there's going to be way too many factors to consider. So looking at privacy by design at this beginning and from, from the rapid onset was really our, our goal and to build our features around those thought processes. Yeah, I'd 100% agree. I think privacy by design is, it's a hard framework to implement once you're fully on the go as far as the application is concerned. It's not impossible, by the way, but it's just extra time, money and effort in order to retrofit it, so to speak. So I think incorporating it as a design principle is very good advice. And it's great that you've laid the foundation in that particular way. You talked about a clinic dashboard. Typically, what kind of information is being presented to the clinician on that front? So the clinic dashboard actually gave us a really unique opportunity to understand how we're actually going to be presenting the data to the clinician. As we know, clinicians are quite time poor and they can't look at graphs and and different bar charts all day. So we needed to take all of the valuable data that we're collecting from patients and present them as really easy to consume insights into the recovery. And again, looking back at the three main features, which are the patient monitoring, the education and the communication. We actually cross-reference those with three different realms within the clinic. So you have the surgeon, you have the clinic staff, and you also have the procedure as well. And we actually combine these data to create specific insights about each of those different stakeholders within the clinic. So for example, we can create specific patient insights, such as patient satisfaction this week with their outcome has actually improved by 13%. Or for a specific surgeon's insight, you can say that satisfaction with the surgeon's care and bedside manners has improved by 3% this month. And at the same time, you can do the same for the procedure. So breast augmentation patients have had the highest satisfaction with outcome this month compared to all other patients. So creating these really easy to understand patient insights was super valuable for us because the last thing that we want to do is take valuable time away from the clinicians. Our goal is to just really make their lives a lot easier and, and provide rich data and easy to understand concepts. Yeah, I think that's, again, really great early insights, basically, in getting the foundations set up around the MVP and putting yourself in a position to actually add value and seamlessly integrate into the prevailing clinical workflow, whilst also addressing those problem areas around the patient education, the retention of knowledge, the adherence to the therapeutic part of the recovery. It's really good stuff. And you've been going through a bit of a process moving all this forward whilst also studying. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what the experience has been like for you actually handling your undergraduate studies at the University of New South Wales in addition to co-founding a digital health startup? You have to mention studying, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) Studying is a whole another podcast on its own. I'd love to get on the show with you just to speak about my studies. I'm just playing around. But honestly, they kind of integrate together a lot better than people would imagine. 
Funnily enough, I actually completed my last exam last week. So for the next couple of weeks, I can really put my head down in terms of work and finish off some investor-related material that we were working on. I think studying at the University of New South Wales has actually provided a lot more opportunities than withdrawals, as I would say. People think that if you're a university student and you're studying, you really just have to focus on that study and, and put your head down. When I think, you know, not only UNSW, all universities in Australia, they provide such amazing opportunities for their students. And I would really encourage people, even if they're in their first year, to start exploring with different societies or different organizations within the university, because all they do and they continuously encourage students to go beyond the realms of just exams. There is personal motivations that are involved. The universities really focus on building opportunities for students at the same time. Yeah, I think the University of New South Wales in particular is showing a lot of leadership in supporting undergraduate innovation in the startup realm. You've been involved with the UNSW Health 10X program as an accelerator. Do you want to share a little bit of the journey that you've had there as well? Yeah, absolutely. So we're actually still currently within the accelerator. So I think it's a six week right now and about a month left of the program, which is a little bit sad, to be honest. But yeah, UNSW's 10X Accelerator is basically split across two different groups. You have the industry agnostic group, which is six teams within the cohort, and then the health focus group, which is the health 10X, as you mentioned, and that's another six group. So we were very lucky to be accepted. And I would say at the same time, we worked pretty hard to get there. I think there was about 100 applicants in total. 50 got selected for the pre-accelerator program, which was a four-week program. And it was super useful in terms of us learning more about the startup realm and getting connected to mentors. And then beyond that, a few pitches and interviews and yeah, we got accepted. So we've been really lucky to work alongside UNSW as well as the George Institute for Global Health. And they've supported us through funding, but at the same time through a huge network of mentors. And we've been really lucky to set up meetings every week, twice a week, really, with with new people within the sector that we're learning from and we're building from. And they're coming on board and really appreciating Pantea and the use of Pantea within healthcare. Yeah, it's great. I've had both Vesna and Dina on the show, and it was great to talk about the Health 10X collaboration there with the George Institute and the University of New South Wales. So it's great to see, you know, products like yourself with the Pantea product that is emerging and, you know, how motivated individuals like yourself and your co-founder can actually demonstrate high productivity, both in terms of pursuing your undergraduate studies, in addition to doing the work that's needed to actually get an MVP to a certain level. So it's a real credit to you. And I think it's good preparation actually for the startup life, because I think startup life is very intense. There's there's a lot of stuff to think about and a lot of hats and roles that you play in the early stages in trying to actually resource the things that need to be done in order to serve your customer and start to generate momentum and financial sustainability in your model. So you're definitely demonstrating some really good energy and aptitude there to be able to bring it to the point that you've actually done it. So it's real credit to you both. And I met you also through the Student Association of Medical Innovation, the SOMI student group, which is really great because that's a group of undergraduates who have formed their own association as an adjunct, I guess, to the University of New South Wales programs. And it's really great to see the quality of the people involved and looking at the way that that whole ecosystem is approaching the process of designing or particularly co-designing products that can really add a lot of value and solve some problems in our case in the healthcare sector. So I think that's fantastic. Any tips you could offer any listeners who are thinking about accelerators and incubators on how to make the most out of that type of program? What have been the key benefits for you? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really glad that you mentioned SOMI as well. They're a student-led group doing fantastic, fantastic work. Fantastic we yep. introduced. Yeah, we were introduced via UNSW Health Connect. So we're really keen on working with them moving forward. In terms of tips of people looking to apply for specific accelerators, I would say really have your problem understood really well and build your solution around the problem. And at the same time, it's all about team in the early stage startup I've seen. So whether you're a solo founder, you have two co-founders or multiple founders, the dynamic between yourself and your co-founder is is really important. And at the same time, making sure that the motivations that you have to actually build the startup go beyond, you know, personal or financial realms, that you're really motivated to create an impact and create change within a specific sector. It doesn't have to just be healthcare, it can be across any sector. But I would say making sure that you have the right mindset and the right team to build the product, especially in an early stage scene, is extremely useful. It's super exciting that they're supporting startups at all different stages, whether it's from an ideation stage to early or pre-seed and then onwards as well. So definitely get involved and at the same time, be extremely motivated and have a real passion and understand your why before applying. So those would be my best tips to provide. That's definitely a really good guidance there for people who may follow in time. They're really important elements that you're describing there. The Health Check X ethos is very closely aligned. It's all about the people and the people that you meet both in terms of who your co-founders are, who ultimately operates within the startup with you, the advisors, the collaborators, all of that is absolutely key. When I think about my successes and failures in startup through the greater proportion of my adult working life, it's always been about the people. For me, it's front and center. I always look at, do the people have the skills and capabilities to be able to move this forward? And it's hard to find that in a solo founder. Typically, when you're looking at digital health in particular, there's a variety of perspectives that I think are absolutely critical to get in the mix. And there are four in particular in the, in the Health Tech X model. We've got to see it through the eyes of the health provider. We've got to see it through the eyes of the developer. We've got to see it through the eyes of a subject matter expert or relevant expertise in that particular area where the customer exists. And we need to see it through the eyes of an investor. And the reason we need those four perspectives together is because it helps us understand the problem that needs to be solved. So what are we doing? Why are we doing it? Then we also need to think about now that we know the problem to solve, how do we solve that problem? So that's where the development or technical perspective is very, very important into the mix. There are rules and regulations that have to be factored in. They're kind of the things that sometimes when you talk, or more often than not, when you talk with a customer who is declaring they've got a problem, the problem itself is not a complete information set. You often find out later that there are rules, regulations, standards, other types of impact, which really need a subject matter expert to have known that in advance. Otherwise you figure it out, but you figure it out a lot later in your startup, and that could produce technical debt and other kinds of impediments to growth as a startup. And then ultimately, you've got to wrap all that up in a financially sustainable model. And that's where the investor's perspective is very key. And when I started building a relationship with the University of New South Wales and also with SOMI, those philosophies and values were very comparable. And I think that's really important to actually being able to crowdsource the right type of skills and resources when you've got a passion around a particular problem to solve or an opportunity to, to address in healthcare. So I think it's great guidance, Mohammed. I appreciate you sharing that aspect of your story. So remote patient monitoring is part of the value proposition going forward. And, you know, we're, we're going through COVID uh, right now, or more so the government's approach to 
trying to manage COVID and obviously impacting all of us. I'm down in Melbourne, so we're at lockdown 6.4 or 5 at the moment. But let's let's think about how the digital health innovations help our community and also our healthcare workforce. So what's your vision around a post-COVID world for private clinics and how Pantea fits into that? So I think even if we think about now, just yesterday was announced in New South Wales that non-urgent category three elective surgeries are to be put on hold, not only in public hospitals, but in private hospitals as well. So I've actually been really busy this morning, sending out a lot of emails to the clients, checking up, seeing how we can manage it over the next few months. So even right now, we're really seeing the need and the use for remote patient monitoring. At the same time, moving forward, I think remote patient monitoring is going to have a huge influence in terms of the patient-doctor dynamic. As it is right now, people are a lot more comfortable in terms of being able to speak with their clinician at home. You see a lot of innovators are within the space, such as CoView. They're doing really great work in terms of remote telehealth. And we really want to be the next big step in terms of remote patient monitoring for private clinics. And really the value of that is seen in terms of there being a holistic understanding of how the patient is recovering without that direct communication and being able to show the patient at the same time that the clinicians really care about how they're progressing throughout the recovery journey is something that we find a lot of value in. So remote patient monitoring, I don't think it's exclusive to COVID. I think in a post-COVID world, we are going to see a huge shift towards digital health and we're really excited to be at the onset of it. And at the same time, I'm really excited for a lot more companies like Pantea to join the scene because competition breeds innovation. So yeah, I think it's definitely quite exciting and I'm sure out of everyone within the industry, Yanni, you can really relate to that. <laughs> oh, 100%, 100%. I work on a vision statement of achieving a world of integrated digital health empowerment for all people. And one of the things that I talk a lot about in the industry is the idea of digital first healthcare service experience design. And I'm very careful with those words because my hypothesis around it is not to ever replace the in-person relationship because I think that's absolutely key to any type of therapeutic outcome. But you can't scale it. I think we've got to acknowledge that. That's a fundamental problem with the established way of providing healthcare. If we just sort of persist with that model where we say one healthcare professional needs to spend time with one patient or client in order to deliver healthcare, there's only a certain amount of hours in the workforce that can actually meet the demand. And when when we're living in a world where the demand is increasingly going up and up and up and up faster than the rate of being able to actually recruit and retain skilled healthcare workers and healthcare professionals, that inevitably is going to be a big problem where you just can't continue to provide healthcare in that way. And so to address that, we have to think about how to scale the delivery of healthcare. And that's where digital health really comes into it and digital first thinking. And I think that's another reason why I wanted to get you on the show, because you're part of the solution there. You know, that idea of extending a relationship between a healthcare professional and their client beyond the appointment and to build engagement and build asymmetric communication and build more adherence to programs and getting the feedback through the proms and the prems incorporating that into a more modernized approach to establishing a longer-term relationship between a health professional and their client, that will start to reimagine things. That will start to open up an opportunity for one healthcare professional to perhaps deal with more patients or clients at any given point in time, but with an effort that is arguably less than if they were trying to do it one-to-one. So it would be a good outcome also for the health professional to not have to just 
continue to put hours and hours and hours into the field in order to meet the demand. It'd be good for the healthcare professionals to also have a good work-life balance whilst also being able to support the same or more people who are also taking a bit more ownership over their education and outcomes supported by the healthcare professional. So that's kind of just a summary, I guess, of where I think digital first healthcare service design comes into it. It improves the whole experience end-to-end for all the key stakeholders, not just for the patient, but also for the healthcare professional. And that's that's where I'm enthusiastic about trying to solve some of the problem on the health professional side with burnout and with scalability of healthcare services. If we keep bringing innovators like yourself into the industry, particularly when we do integrations with established products like Core Plus, for example, and other clinical systems, we can actually really empower the healthcare workforce to implement digital first healthcare service design and manifest it basically. And that will be ticking the boxes for all the key stakeholders concerned. What's your sense of that? How far away do you think we are from making some breakthroughs there? I think what you mentioned in terms of scalability and the scale of providing healthcare services is really what we're focusing on. I mean, if we have a look to the early 2000s, you had ERAS, which is the Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Society, they actually provided these specific post-surgery recovery guidelines for a lot of patients and a lot of procedures. And they brought together a group of multidisciplinary physicians and clinicians, such as you know psychologists, physiotherapists, surgeons, general practitioners, and they created these set of guidelines for patient recovery. And at the same time, it was really hard to actually expand and scale out this set of protocols across the world. And looking on now, you know, in the mid 2010s, where the onset of digital health really started to pick up, we could actually start scaling out these models and we can actually start delivering this enhanced recovery after surgery guidelines to clinicians all around the world. So I think, as you mentioned, the power of scalability is really there in terms of delivering better health outcomes and better patient engagement across the entire stage. And you mentioned it perfectly when you said that it positively impacts every single stakeholder within the field. I guess at the same time, it's it's just a difficult transition to make at the moment, but in a way, COVID has really helped provide the need and the necessity behind it. So, Yeah, that's arguably one of the few positives. <laughs> one of the few positives. <laughs> one of the few positives. It's, <laughs> it has provided some pretty good reasons to embrace digital health. And it also overcomes, you know, the tyranny of distance for the remote communities and being, being able to access and maintain relationships with healthcare professionals over a protracted period of time, as well as also potentially improving the choices that the healthcare workforce can make with respect to where they want to be located for their lives, because they may want to move out of the city if they can still work and not necessarily have to be in the city to be able to do that. So, you know, I see it's a, it's a multivariate opportunity, I think, for society, for the healthcare industry and for the, for the stakeholders to benefit by using digital first thinking in the mix. Mahabha, thank you so much for coming along today and, and sharing your story. And I look forward to tracking your progress. And I really appreciate you taking the time to come in and, and share the story with us today. So thank you. Absolutely. Thanks a lot for having me, Annie. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Health Tech X, where we are working toward a world of integrated digital health empowerment for all people. If you'd like more info on how to get involved, head over to the website, healthtechx.com.au. Or if you have any feedback about the show, you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, Instagram, or email by following the links in this episode's show notes. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to Reimagining Healthcare in your podcast app. 
And if you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm your host, Yanni Sopanos, and I'll speak to you in our next episode.